may be seated. Let's pray together for God's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Heavenly Father, we have been lied to over the course of this week by the idols of our hearts. We have been deceived by the lures of the culture into thinking that there is something in this world that will truly satisfy. Father, we ask this morning that you would teach us true things from your word. You would teach us of the grace of Christ, not only by which we are saved, but by which our lives begin to be straightened out and we are no longer distorted by the sins of our own hearts. And so we pray for your grace this morning. Send your spirit to be our teacher this morning. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, we're resuming our studies in the gospel of Mark this morning. And our text this morning is Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. You'll find that on page 841 in the Pew Bible. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Mark writes, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon and are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Well, this is the year of my 20th high school reunion, which means to some of you I'm just a pup. To others of you, I'm ancient. Um, I do not plan to go, but I can imagine what the conversation might go like. So what are you doing these days? Well, I'm a pastor. I'm sure my old friends, buddies would almost choke on their food. What? You're a what? Yes, I'm a pastor. Maybe during the rest of the evening, they would begin to sort of distance themselves from me. No longer having the same types of things to talk about. No longer being able to reminisce about the good old days and some of the foolish things that we used to do. Jesus here is returning to Nazareth. It's a few short miles from the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee where he has been ministering and healing and preaching. It's a small town of 
approximately 500 people in Jesus' day, which would mean that when Jesus returned, everybody would know him. They knew his family. They knew what he was like growing up. They had seen him develop as a child. We are told in the first few chapters of Luke that Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. And so they had seen Jesus as a child grow up. They had seen him as an apprentice under his father, the carpenter. They had probably had some level of business dealings with him because in a town of 500, you probably need a a carpenter and there probably aren't that many. So likely they've had some kind of business dealings with Jesus and they've known what he is like. And here he goes into the synagogue to teach the people. And we're told that he opens up the scriptures and that many who heard him were astonished. People might have been nudging one another and saying, is that Jesus? Is, wait a minute. Is that Jesus who used to play with my little Simon? That can't be the same Jesus. How is he up there teaching with such great wisdom, doing such mighty works? You see, because there was something different about him now, they began to distance themselves from him. We're told in John chapter one. That Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And that's really the picture that's taking place here. Jesus' own from his own hometown will not receive him. And in a way, you might say that's been the narrative of world history. God has come to his own creation, and yet the vast majority of people have not received him. And so what's taking place here in Nazareth is sort of a microcosm of the rest of world history. And Jesus summarizes his rejection here in verse four by giving them this little uh, little uh, proverb. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. See, there's something that they missed about Jesus. Jesus might have been thinking, you think you know me. But you really have no idea who I am. And it's this rejection of Jesus here and then the commissioning of the disciples, I think, that teaches us two different things. One, those who reject Christ will be rejected by him. And secondly, Those who accept Christ in faith will actually be sent out by him and commissioned by him to represent him. And so the first thing here, that those who reject Christ are rejected by him. We're we're told in verse two that they're astonished, they're overwhelmed, they're shocked. Who is this that that teaches with such wisdom, that performs such mighty works, they ask. But their astonishment is is not positive, but rather it's one of disbelief. Because later on, Mark tells us that they took offense at him. Literally, Jesus was a stumbling stone to them. And that's a theme that runs throughout the Bible. Peter picks up on it as he quotes Isaiah chapter 8 and Psalm 118. That Jesus has become a stumbling stone to people. A scandalon 
or a scandal in people's eyes. They look upon him and they despise him. Even Peter is spoken of as a stumbling block to Jesus when he denies that the or the crucifixion must take place. Jesus says, get behind me, you're a hindrance to me, you're a stumbling block to me. And here it's Jesus who's a stumbling block. And why is that? Well, if we read in verse three, I think we find the answer. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? They're not his sisters here with us. Isn't this the son of the carpenter? Joseph, isn't he the son of Mary? Actually, by referring to him as the son of his mother was a derogatory way of speaking of him. It may actually be a way of speaking of him as being an illegitimate son. For all, remember, this was a virgin birth. Joseph and Mary had not yet come together when she was with child. And so they may be slandering him a bit and speaking of him as the son of Mary. There's something wrong with him. Who does he think he is? What makes him think he is so special? See, they despised him not for what he said, not for what he did in performing miracles, but they despised him for who he claimed to be. They despised his implicit claim of, of authority. And what they determined was that he was ordinary. That he was just like them. Aren't his sisters here? Aren't his brothers here? Isn't he just one of us? Certainly, there's nothing special about Jesus. He's an ordinary man. You're not any better than us. Even his family members thought the same thing. You remember, as we studied back in chapter 3, verse 21, his family heard of some of the things that he was doing. They went out to seize him for they were saying, he's out of his mind. Even his own family members, to some extent, resented him for some of the things that he was doing. I think when people who are greater than us come close to us, it, it in a way it scares us to death. Think of meeting a celebrity, maybe someone in music or the performing arts. Maybe it's a sports figure. Maybe it's the president of the United States. And all of a sudden you're wondering, what should I say? How should I act? What should I do? And it's in that person's presence that you you feel a little bit uneasy and just a little bit scared because you feel less significant and less important yourself. But when it comes to people that we think that we know, people that maybe we knew beforehand, we resent them for their presence. You can imagine maybe going back if you're a college student this morning, going back to your hometown, if you're from a small town, you go back, people know you. Imagine the shoe is on the other foot. Imagine maybe a, a family member comes back for the holidays. Or somebody in your town comes back and this person has had some measure of success. They've, they've maybe done something great. And everybody begins to praise them. And what do you feel in your heart? You may praise them a bit too, but there's just a little bit of a twinge of well, you're nothing special. I could have done that too. If I really wanted to, I could have done that. In a way, that's how they view Jesus. There's nothing special 
about you, Jesus. There couldn't be any special, anything special about you, because if there is, then that means you're worthy of following. And after I have to devote my life to you. And so they tossed his ministry aside as a scam. It's sort of like in the movie, The Wizard of Oz. You remember Dorothy finally gets to Oz and there's the great wizard, all the pyrotechnics show right in front of her. And then what does little Toto do? He he runs over to the side and he pulls back the curtain and there's just a man there and he's pulling the levers and flipping the switches. And it's almost as though the people are looking at Jesus and saying, well, there's some great crowds following you. But we're not going to be fooled. We're going to pull the curtain back on you and expose you that all you are, you are just a man, just like one of us. And so Jesus's presence there was like a lightning rod and they couldn't accept anything special about him because if his wisdom, his power were really from God, what it would do is actually expose something about them. And I think what it would expose is their own spiritual poverty. Just like when you stand in the presence of somebody who's great, there's something in you that begins to shrink and you are revealed for lacking the kind of glory that you wish you had in your life. And so they have to reject him or accept the fact that all of their spiritual efforts actually amount to nothing that there's a real spiritually depravity or corruption within him, them. And so he's this great stumbling block for people to come to Christ. And I think that's because we think so highly of ourselves. After all, if you have to admit that you need someone, if you need God to come to earth and die a horrible death for you to pay for your sins, well, what does that say about you? begins to burst your bubble a little bit and all that you thought of yourself and all the years that you've spent building yourself up and erecting this image of yourself, all of a sudden it's deflated in the presence of the almighty God, which is the person that they stood before in Nazareth. I think we all have an inflated view of ourselves. We're sort of secretly like Will Ferrell's character in the movie Anchorman. When he asked someone, do you know who I am? They said, well, no, I don't. And he responded, well, I'm a pretty big deal. We should probably all, if we're people of integrity, actually walk around with a shirt on that says, I'm a pretty big deal. Because that's more honest about how we view ourselves. And what Jesus is doing by coming into their presence and I would say what he's doing by coming into your presence is to reveal just a little bit more of who you are and just how much you need his grace. And that you need him to go to the cross, that you need him to be despised for you. You need him to be rejected. You need him to be crucified. You need the wrath of the heavenly father to be poured out on him rather than upon you. So that when you trust in him by faith, all of that is yours and you get to go free. But you see, every sense of doubt, every lack of faith within us is a way in which we want to make Jesus ordinary, that he's not really that special in our presence. He can't really 
answer my prayers. He can't really do anything about my problems because he's not big enough. He's not really worth my full devotion. Maybe he gets a little bit of my life, but he doesn't get my whole life because he's just not that special. Jesus really doesn't have the right to demand of me everything that he demands. Because you see, I'm the one who's really special and I have the right to order my life in ways that please me. And really, unless we're willing to humble ourselves and come to Jesus in faith, then actually we'll be excluded from all of His graces. And that's what we find here in this section. Verse 5, He could do no mighty work there except that He laid His hands on a few sick people and healed them. We're told here that He could do no mighty works. Now, I remember at the University of Missouri taking a New Testament class and Dr. Farmer, who was the closest thing that you could get to a real Christian in the religion department, told us that somehow Jesus's power was sapped from him because of the response of the people. I don't think that's what's taking place. Jesus does not cease to be God based on how people respond to him. But rather, it would be inappropriate for Jesus to reveal more of Himself and to bring about healing and to do miracles in the face of such unbelief. It would be inappropriate for Him to reveal Himself in that way because you see, all it would actually do is harden the people even more against Him. Jesus tells us, whoever is ashamed of Me and My words of Him will I also be ashamed. If you reject Christ, the sad story is that in the end He will reject you too. And that He will be ashamed of you before the Father just as you are ashamed before Him in this life. But you see, it's those who come to Him in faith, those who accept His grace, those who accept His love and want to give their lives away to Him. It's those people that He showers His grace upon and He gives them a noble task. And that's the second thing that we see in this passage. It's to those who accept Christ are called to represent Him in the world. If you accept Jesus in faith, if you come to Him and you recognize His assessment of your life and that you're in desperate need of His grace and forgiveness, if you understand that if it were not for the cross, you would have no access to God, to the Heavenly Father, that you would be without hope and without God in the world. If you accept all of that, then he says, welcome. Welcome into my kingdom. And now let me give you a greater and more noble task than you've ever had in your life. Let me rescue you from your self-absorption. Let me rescue you from living your life for yourself. Let me let rescue you from trying to live your life for idolatrous pursuits that in the end on your deathbed you would say, what did I accomplish? But rather, he gives you the noble way of representing him in the world. Now, I think one of the things that we see here is that when Jesus sends out his disciples and sends us out in the world in an analogous fashion, 
one of the things that we have to realize is that we're no special case. In other words, no servant is greater than his master. Jesus suffered and was rejected by men. And that will be the same for you. Isn't that not what he tells his disciples? If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake the dust off your feet. In some sense, we should expect that we are a prophet without honor too. And that when we go out into the world to serve Jesus, we go out as his emissaries. We will face in some sense the same kind of rejection at times that he faced. He faced opposition and you will too. And it's because of that that Jesus gives some instruction to his people. But he also provides us with particular helps from this particular passage. Let me mention three real quick. One, partnership in ministry. He says here in verse 7, he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two. Jesus sends the disciples out in pairs, possibly because in the Old Testament, a, a witness was confirmed uh, or confirmed the testimony of another. And so here they're going out in pairs to confirm the witness of the gospel. But I think also going out in pairs to help and to assist one another. A number of years ago, quite a few years ago now, the, the four minute mile barrier was broken by Ed Bannister. And Ed was not a professional runner. He had no contracts. He had no sponsors. He was just running on the side part time. And he got together with several of his friends who committed to helping Ed run a full mile. And so as Ed started out on the first lap, one of his buddies started out too and sprinted as fast as he could in front of Ed, breaking the wind so that Ed could run as fast as he could. He had a pace setter. When he finished that lap, that man fell off and another one started. And so it went four laps around. And Ed finished three minutes, 59.4 seconds. First man to ever run the four-minute mile. And in a way, when we go out into the world to minister in the name of Christ, we go not as individuals, but we go out as the body of Christ. So that those who are next to us can lock arms with us and assist us in ministry because there is no one who has all the gifts necessary to serve in the kingdom of God. No one will get very, very far by seeking to build the kingdom all by themselves. There is no one man show. Who is praying for your efforts in ministry? Who's encouraging you in ministry? Who's giving you wisdom and insight as you Seek to share the gospel with a non-Christian who's assisting you as you seek to assist other people. Are you looking at ministry simply as your own show? What can I do? And then all of a sudden realizing I don't have the resources within myself to do it. A few weeks ago, a couple of young mothers came into the church office building Almost after hours, and they were looking for food. They had two little boys with them. You could, you could not deny helping them 
The problem was they spoke Spanish. And no matter what I wanted to do to help them, there was actually nothing I could do. So I called one of our friendly deacons, and you can probably do the math and work out who it was who speaks Spanish. And he came, and he and I took them to the store and bought them some food. But if it wasn't for him, I could do nothing. My friends, when you think about laboring in ministry in the name of Jesus, you don't go by yourself. You can't. Ministry is done by the body of Christ. Secondly, not only partnership in ministry, but he also gives us authority in ministry. Again, in verse 7, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. The same authority that Jesus used to excise demons from people is the same authority that he now gives to his disciples. And he sends them out. And they perform works similar to the works that Jesus performed. Now, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, what we read is Jesus saying, now all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. And because of that, I send you. You go out with the same authority that Jesus possesses. Our sending is analogous to the sending the disciples here with the authority to proclaim the Gospel by word and by deed. So that we go out in service to Christ as an extension of his authority in the world. You represent the king of all creation. There is no greater noble task than that. And you go with his authority. Look at some of the things they did. They went out and proclaimed the people that the people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. They're going out with the authority of Jesus. And when Jesus commissions his church, he sends the church out with the same authority that he possesses. So that we might be faithful to use all of our gifts. And he will be faithful to use your most feeble efforts in ministry to build his kingdom. You need to know that. Your most feeble effort in ministry is not wasted in the kingdom of God. Now, we live in a postmodern world where no one has the right to tell anybody else what to believe. And sometimes we wonder, do I have a right to speak into anyone's life? Do I have a, a right to tell anybody the truth of the gospel? And what you need to know is that that right was given to you. By the king of heaven and earth. He sends you out. And he says, I give you my authority to go proclaim the gospel. People may reject it. People may not receive you. And if they don't receive you, they don't receive me. But you have all the authority under heaven. To in a very loving and gracious way. Tell people about the one who has saved you. And loved you from all of eternity. And will love you forever. Sometimes our efforts to relate to non-Christians, unfortunately, we want to build bridges to them. We want to respect them, and that's right. And we want to understand what they believe, and that's right. But sometimes we are so fearful of speaking into their lives, we never actually cross the bridge and go tell them the good news. And friends, it really is good news. Don't fear that you don't have authority 
to represent Jesus because He's given it to you. Finally, let me say this. The last thing that Jesus gives to us is He provides our necessities in ministry. He told the disciples, He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. They were to take only the most barest of essentials. In the way it parallels the command to the Israelites as they were coming out of Egypt during the Exodus. They were fleeing from Pharaoh. And what did God tell them? He told them to bring these four things because they were to live in dependence upon God in the wilderness. Now he's telling his disciples, you live in dependence upon me to provide what you need as you go out and do ministry. Ministry is a work of faith. Otherwise, it's a work of self-confidence. Sometimes we fear that if we give too much, if we too, pay too great a sacrifice. Well, then what about my needs? How are my needs going to be met? It's a question the disciples ask. Lord, we've left homes. We've left families for you. What about us? Jesus promised that he who has left homes or families or lands or anything else will receive a hundred times more in this life and in the life to come. Friends, he'll provide everything that you need. He's your confidence. Go in faith in him. Ministry is a work of faith. Samuel Rutherford, one of my favorite sayings, he said, duties are ours. Events are God's. All you have to do is seek to be faithful and let the King of heaven and earth bear fruit for His kingdom. Friends, if Christ has saved you, if you've understood His grace, then you want nothing less to be a herald of His good news and of His kingdom. Jesus here reveals just how important these provisions are in ministry because there's a real urgency about this gospel message. Those who have seen themselves in the light of Jesus' glory, those who have not rejected Jesus as ordinary, but have seen Him and seen His majesty, who have seen His grace and long to be with Him, you want nothing less than to go tell everybody else with the same sense of urgency that Jesus gives to the disciples here. In fact, He tells them, if people do not receive you, shake the dust off your feet as you leave. In other words, keep moving. For that will be a sign of judgment on, the, on those who do not believe. There's a sense of urgency about the mission that God gives to us. Special urgency. Sometimes I think we lose that sense of urgency. Because we're so surrounded by Christians and only Christians that we actually don't even see the need in the world. We're not around non-Christians. We've insulated ourselves. So we don't see the sense of urgency that there is about the gospel. And then evangelism and ministry becomes some special task that we're to perform over there somewhere rather than right here in our own lives. 
Let me close with this. This is a poem uh, or a little story by an atheist who spoke about his daughter going to vacation Bible school. It was supposed to be arts and crafts for a week. But when she came home with the Jesus saves button, we knew what art was up, what ancient craft. She liked her little friends. She liked the songs they sang when they weren't twisting and folding paper into dolls. What could be so bad? Jesus had been a good man. And putting faith in good men was what we had to do to say, stay this side of cynicism. What other sadness, that other sadness. Okay, we said one week. But when she came home singing, Jesus loves me, the Bible tells me so. Well, it was time to talk. Could we say Jesus doesn't love you? Could I tell her the Bible is a great book certain people use to make you feel bad? We sent her back without a word. It had been so long since we believed, so long since we needed Jesus as our nemesis and friend that we thought he was sufficiently dead. That our children would think of him like Lincoln or Thomas Jefferson. Soon it became clear to us, you can't teach disbelief to a child, only wonderful stories. And we had not a story nearly as good to tell. On parents' night, there were the crafts and Arts and crafts all spread out like appetizers. Then we took our seats in the church. And the children sang a song about the ark and hallelujah. And one in which they had to jump up and down for Jesus. I can't remember ever feeling so uncertain about what's comic, what's serious. Evolution is magical, but devoid of heroes. You can't say to your child, evolution loves you. The story stinks of extinction and nothing Exciting happens for centuries. I didn't have a wonderful story for my child, and she was beaming. On the way home in the car, she sang the songs, occasionally standing up for Jesus. There was nothing to do but drive, write it out, and sing along in silence. My friends, if you have accepted Christ, you have the greatest story to tell. There is no other like it. Go today on an errand from the King to tell of the One who saved you. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your mercies are rich and they are true in Jesus. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the one and only begotten of the Father. Lord, we pray that we would not see Him as Ordinary, but rather as the most special. Rather, we would see his grace and his goodness to us. We would receive his cross. We would confess our sins and come to you. Lord, that we would also seek to bear witness of the one who has saved us and loved us so well. Be with us today as we go forward. We pray that our lives would honor you. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Our final hymn is on your insert, Jesus, I, my cross have taken. Let's stand and sing.